Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hello. Nate Hopkins. Hi there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a quick note, I'm going to be revving up the DevRev again, so uh, check that out on YouTube. We have a special guest this week, and that's Todd Kaufman. Todd, do you want to say hi? Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. You want to give us just a quick rundown on who you are and why you're important and all that stuff? Yeah, I, I don't know that I'm important. Uh, my name's Todd Kaufman, though. I am one of the co-founders of Testable, a software development consultancy. We got started about eight years ago and uh, have since grown from just myself and Justin Searles in the early days to up around 60 consultants right now. Nice. It's funny. I have a bunch of friends who have started consultancies and now they're, they're making a ton of money and I'm going, I, I missed that boat. <laughs> It's never too late. It's never too late. Yeah, one of my friends, of course, he runs the big Angular conference and he started an Angular consultancy. Yeah, his business just ticked up. He, they've been out for like a year. Yeah, it's just because he knew everybody. Yeah, the network definitely plays a part. We're talking a little bit about this article on the Testable blog. It looks like you uh, wrote it last year, a business Q&A. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious a bit, you know, when you got started with Testable... Was it just you and Justin and, you know, did it grow real fast? And I mean, what, what, what are people looking at? Because I was freelance for like six years. I built out a team at one point for a project and then I ramped it back down when I was done. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious how that all goes. Yeah, I think with Justin and I, when we started, uh, it was around eight years ago. Um, it was a kind of a mixture of, I, I guess, like ignorance or, or naivete and uh, courage. We felt like a lot of the consulting companies that we had worked at at the time just didn't align with what we felt was important. They might have too much of a focus on, say, process. There's a lot of like agile process consultancies, and some of those are valuable. A lot of them aren't. Very few of them actually focused on good software development practices. It was all about the process. So that rubbed us a little bit the wrong way. Uh, we saw other consultancies that just heavily incented sales reps to get deals closed, even though that would result in you know unrealistic expectations for the consultants themselves, the delivery team. And then those people would be stuck working nights and weekends to make big commission checks for these people who, who really didn't do a great job. We felt like all of that was a little bit backwards. We thought, look, if we were going to start something, we could do it differently. We could say no to things like fixed bid, fixed scope projects. We could kind of put the, the developers first and foremost and really just empower them to solve challenging problems. And so far, it's, it's resulted in a lot of growth, I think primarily just because we've, we've hired a lot of great people. And been pretty successful at finding, you know, just challenging environments in which to thrive. I really like that. Just just the focus on the developers. Uh, my first job, incidentally, Nate was my mentor at that first development job. I really loved that job, and I thought they really cared about me until, you know, they didn't have another project for me to move to, and they just laid me off that same day. They tried to move me on to one of their other clients that didn't work out, and then literally like two months later, they're calling me up. Can you come back? We have a Rails project, and it's like. Pfft. No. And so, yeah, you know, it, it left a sour feeling in my or a sour taste in my mouth. And I've seen a lot of other, these other problems crop up. So what are you doing differently then? What, what are you doing that really makes it so it's developer focused, you know, that it, it provides the kind of environment that people want to work in? Because at the same time, you're a business, right? You have to make money to pay these people and things like that. So there's got to be some focus the other way, right? Yeah, I think that the what you're pointing at is is maybe a company who just doesn't have their financial ship in order. And that's something that we've always been a very fiscally conservative company. Most people call that cheap, uh, but that's okay. That's one of the reasons why we started out remote, right? We didn't feel the need to build an office space or, or really spend any money that was uh, extraneous. 
that fiscal conservatism means that we can, you know, make sure that we carry a bench. If we have somebody who's uh, in between projects for us, uh, we have enough profits and enough runway where we don't, we aren't forced into making a decision to let someone go just to try and make, you know, a short-term financial uh, metric. Instead, we kind of look longer term. And the fact that we are healthy financially means that we can be selective about what projects we work on. It means we can hire people to the bench when we know they're a great fit and we don't necessarily have a project directly lined up for them. That's kind of the yin and yang, I think, of a consulting business is you have to have strong financials. You have to have a good operational model. And then on the on the developer side, we've been developers for 20 plus years each. So we both know kind of what's important and what people are looking for. They want autonomy. They want the ability to, to learn and grow from others. They want to feel like they're working on something that's fulfilling. So we try to provide that in spades. Yeah, for the record, I've got to I've got to say that I had nothing to do with the decision to let Chuck go. That's true. Yeah. He went yeah. to that for me at that client they were trying to land me at. So Yeah, that was that was unfortunate and definitely I felt it was a little unjustified and harsh. But I mean that that launched your podcasting career. Uh yeah. I, I wound up starting up the podcast right around that same time. So Todd, I have a question for you around basically just the knowledge of the developers and kind of the projects that you guys work on. So from my experience with a lot of people or developers that meet from consultancies, they are really just a turn and burn shop. They get a client, they work on the project, and then they move on. And for me personally, not having to maintain a project long term, you can never really dive deeper in your knowledge and to really understand the mistakes that you're making today, how they will affect the project long-term. So the projects that you guys work on, do you carry a maintenance contract so you're constantly working on those clients? Or is it more, once you complete and fulfill the requirements, you might have someone on call, but it's not really a long-term project? Yeah, it's a good question, Dave. A lot of what we do are open-ended contracts. So we don't do any real maintenance contracts or support-level contracts. But the open-ended nature of our contracts means that we tend to work with our clients for a longer duration. I would say our, our average project length is maybe nine months or so. And we have some clients who've been with us for four years. So we do see a little bit of that long tail, how do our decisions kind of affect things in the future. But I think you're accurately hitting on kind of a trade-off between consulting and really working for a product company. Consulting, you get a lot of different variety. So I think you get to see a lot of different problems and you you can start to see the patterns emerge among different companies. With product company, you may get a lot deeper knowledge in certain areas. Uh, and you also may get to see things more, you know, kind of really from soup to nuts, from inception all the way through to the maintenance life cycle. So I think a mixture of both in your career is beneficial. For us, we just, we really like kind of seeing the patterns emerge from different clients. And that's why I've stuck with consulting. I have to say that that, I like the way you framed it because a lot of people will frame one as better than the other. And in a lot of cases, it's, you know what, do you want that kind of steady state approach to software development? Or do you want to have the challenge change up on you periodically? And some people thrive under one circumstance and some people thrive under the other. And so if you can find a company that's going to give you whatever it is you need, then you can, you can really figure out that that's where you need to be. And so understanding that you may figure out, you know what, test double is where I want to be at. Or you may figure out, that sounds insane to me. I want to go f- go somewhere else where I can work on the same project for 10 years. Yeah, definitely. And I think a, a prime example of, you know, one way where you can get a depth of knowledge even with consulting is the fact that Rails upgrades are a big portion of our work right now, right? So 4.2s and beyond or and earlier is no longer supported. Uh, so that's a big liability and risk for a lot of businesses. So we've been charged with coming in, helping them upgrade those systems. We have a few consultants who've done this, like three or four different clients now. So they actually have a depth of experience with how to go about doing a Rails upgrade that really is kind of unrivaled. And that's probably not something that you would get if you were just doing one Rails upgrade, you know, every four or five years at one of these product companies. You had mentioned early on that you you expressed your values as a company, one of those being that you weren't going to pursue fixed bid projects. So when you're just starting out, how do you, what does that look like in the sales cycle? How do you convince a client to not go with a fixed bid? To be clear, the the bigger you get, the more choosy you can be with projects. When I rewind back to like just Justin and I and our first couple of clients, like 
we'd probably do fixed bid, fixed scope uh, if you really forced us to or if we had to. What we're trying to articulate to clients when they're saying, hey, we want to know exactly how much this is going to cost for exactly the scope of work is that it's very limiting, right? So at that phase of the project, we all know collectively the least amount about the solution. So we don't want to, you know, really kind of fence in the client on all of the different possibilities that we could pursue uh, in trying to solve this problem for them. In order to do that means like we can't fixate on scope on day zero of the project. So we want to be sensitive to their budgets. Like oftentimes what they're really saying is, I don't have an unlimited budget to spend on this project. What I want to know is, uh, given a, you know, a high-level set of requirements, what's your confidence level that you can get all this stuff done? And we do use a lot of agile processes to, to try and iteratively develop a system that will meet all their needs, but also be respectful of their budgets. So we try to change the conversation really to be about faster feedback and just being able to change direction quickly instead of trying to fixate on everything up front. I find that interesting too, just because I started out only doing hourly contracts and then quickly figured out that it was much easier for me just collections wise to do the fixed bids because I could just get paid up front and go for it. But again, you know, you mentioned that, you know, at a certain size, you can be a little choosier. And if people are used to working with you that way and you find that they're reliable, then I definitely see where that would work. Yeah, especially after you've established your reputation and authority in the space, right? Like Test Devil has. I still am not clear on what that conversation looks like on the sales side in early days when you're trying to convince a client to, to not go fixed bid or to, and, and not be staff og either, right? Or you're just not saying, well, I'll just bill you an hourly rate but we're going to try to tackle this project together with the boundaries of what the requirements are. Maybe the requirements are a little fuzzy. Maybe success isn't clearly defined yet. Yeah. And I think that to be clear, we're comfortable with fixed budgets. If somebody comes to us and says, Hey, we have X amount of dollars. We can translate that into, okay, a pair of our developers would burn through that around, you know, Y amount of months. When we get nervous is when they say we have X amount of dollars and all of these things need to be complete within that budget. Trying to very closely align a budget with a fixed set of scope, especially at the inception of a project, is dangerous. Things come up that we're not planning on, so it's difficult for us to estimate how long things are going to take. Further, clients have a really consistent tendency to neglect some important details <laughs> in the requirements. Uh, <laughs> as far as like what is, you know, we, I've had... Spreadsheets of requirements before that say we want the ability to report on data, right? What does that mean? Is that like a half a million dollar data warehouse? Or is that like you want a single report like in CSV form on some of this stuff? The variance in some of these things is, is really hard. And honestly, we haven't met a lot of clients who are good at communicating exactly what they want at the first stage of the project. So again, I think you can be choosy. For us, we try to like engender trust like what they're what they're really saying is like we don't trust you to get all this stuff done in time so we're going to try to contract you into it instead we approach it the other way we say look all of our contracts are open-ended at the point where you feel like you're not getting value from us just ask us to leave and we'll leave we'll transition everything over to your team we found that that tends to build a lot more trust and it tends to make this fixed scope stuff like go away does that contractually take the shape of like a one-week commitment or a one-month commitment? What does that look like? Zero commitment. We ask for a week's notice before rolling us off, before really changing anything about the team, whether it's team size or you know ending the engagement altogether. Because most of our clients have their own development teams. So a lot of what we see right now, you know, to your point about still a good time to start a consultancy uh, that was made earlier. People are still struggling to find like really talented software developers. So that's a lot of the work that we do. If a client is interested in finding people and hiring them, they may go on a spree of hiring where they don't necessarily need our services. So we try to respect that, you know, high five them, wish them well, and move on. I've always found that interesting. Software development companies who outsource the software development. We hope it's never completely outsourced. That's the case sometimes when we work with smaller kind of startup focused companies. But even they should have a plan in place for getting some full-time staff, right? Like it's one, it's more economical than using consultants. And two, you want at least some level of continuity, some level of you know depth of understanding of your business domain to be full-time employees of the team. So we're typically integrated with your existing team. 
So what would you guys say your niche is? Do you guys develop just basic web page or web applications for people? Or do you generate like SaaS products for clients? Yeah, people ask us all the time, like what industries do we specialize in? Or, you know, kind of what is our typical solution for problems? I think really what we do is we try to really quickly integrate with an existing team, obviously help them with whatever they need built. But more importantly, we want to leave every team that we work with in a better place than we found them. Sometimes that's, you know, helping with testing practices, as our name might suggest. Other times it's helping them come up to speed with uh, maybe a new language or framework that they haven't used before, whether that's Elixir or React or what have you. But oftentimes it's the bigger issues, right? Uh, Companies have challenges with communication or process or meeting deadlines, communicating expectations, all of those things. We want to come in really as consultants and shine a light on those things and hopefully help the clients figure out how to fix them, how to address them so that you know their teams are healthier and happier after we leave. So I'm a little curious about just the process of getting to where you are, right? So somebody's probably listening to this and going, yeah, you know, it sounds great. You know, I can go do X, Y, and Z, and I could go learn to do all these things, and then, you know, I can have a successful business. But there are things that people just don't know that they aren't ready for, or things that they don't know they don't know. So what are some of the gotchas building up a company like this? Oh, man, there's definitely a lot of gotchas. I'd say the the biggest ones that are challenging for us are you always have to have somebody working to fill a pipeline with new prospects and leads. With us, we've tried to approach that via expanding our networks, via like developing meaningful relationships, a lot of them within our networks. And it never ceases to amaze me whenever we start to slow down on that front because maybe we're at capacity. Uh, we get these bubbles in our sales pipeline. And then next thing you know, two months down the road, a couple of projects end and we don't have work for people. So whether you're a 150-person consultancy or whether you're a 10-person consultancy, if you don't have a consistent level of sales activity, you're going to run into issues. And I think the, the other big gotchas are, I think one of the big benefits that we've had is that we've always just worked to be upfront, open and honest with all of our clients uh, and never misrepresent ourselves. And that's resulted in, in you know, the vast majority of our clients being extremely happy with our work, which as we've gone on has wound up resulting in a lot of other referrals and just other project opportunities with those clients. So those are probably like the two biggest things I would keep your eyes on are making sure you have a high level of client delight, any issues that come up, address them in real time, own up to them, and then making sure that you're never taking your eye off the ball with sales. What are some of the things that you guys do at the top of the sales funnel to kind of just generate awareness and kind of start to prime that pump. Yeah, I think that Justin's done the vast majority of legwork there over the last seven years, not only like just gotten really good at conveying thoughtful messages via conference presentations and blog posts, but he's he's done it from a place of real kind of authenticity. He just wants to help people. And I think that philosophy, that's how we do sales. We're very consultative. We're, we're not in it for us. We're in it to help you. I think that mindset goes a long way. So for us, it's been a lot of conference presentations, and that goes beyond Justin. We have a lot of people that get out and speak at conferences now, but that's a huge part. We still get a lot of people hitting our website just based on our blog. Uh, so sharing as much you know, valuable content as we can there has been huge. And then for, for me, it's probably been more of my network. I'm a little bit longer uh, in my career than some of the other people at Testable. So the benefit of that is people who are Developers that I worked side by side with 20 years ago are now VPs of engineering and CIOs. So continuing to you know maintain those relationships and and reach out to those people and connect with them and see what's going on has really resulted in a lot of kind of quick sales. Right, you don't have to do a lot of selling. You don't have to do a lot of trust building because they know who you are. When they have a problem that lines up with with what we can solve, they just reach out. So that's great. So mid funnel in your sales pipeline then. You said your uh, test doubles with what, about a 60-person consultancy now? Yep. And so mid-funnel, how many people do you have paying attention to the sales funnel and what types of tools and techniques and, and things are you using to kind of curate the, the people that, are, that have fallen into the funnel? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is something that is an area of focus for us right now, honestly. Uh, Justin heads up all of our sales and marketing. And I still am involved in a lot of sales, especially towards the back of the funnel on the closing process. So he and I, and then we hired Mike Jansen, who does client services for us. 
the three of us are probably, you know, 99% of the people focused on sales on a day in day out basis. Mike's kind of harvesting deals from our existing clients. I'm doing more kind of like proactive sales and Justin's feeding the funnel via marketing. The tools that we use for that right now are Pipedrive, which is, uh, yeah, there's a bazillion different uh, sales tools uh, out there. That one's a great one just because it provides a, a persistence of action that you really need in sales. And it provides pretty good reporting so that you can actually kind of forecast out, look on close rates, we expect to probably get about four more deals in the next three months. But yeah, that's that we look at that stuff on a weekly, if not daily basis, the three of us. Do you have targets for what's you know the, the amount of dollar value coming through the pipeline there? Yeah, we don't have like a traditional kind of like sales structure where we're you know putting a $2 million new deal bogey on anyone's head or anything like that. Instead, we kind of look at it as a point in time. We understand that we're typically going to have about two to six people coming free in any given month from just projects kind of naturally coming to a close. So we understand that in order to kind of keep at our current state, we need probably two or so projects starting up at any given point at any given month. So there's some cyclic nature to that, but we can rewind that based on close rates to understand, hey, we should probably have you know, about 10 new deals coming into the pipeline in any given month. It sounds like that's, you, I mean, you've got a pretty good finger on the pulse of, of the sales pipeline and, and kind of how to maintain what's, what's happening. But if you wanted to grow the company or shrink the company, how does that factor in? It sounds like it would be a very deliberate decision uh, on your part to grow. And what, what drives that? Yeah, we actually uh, kind of put down our thoughts to paper last year about growth. Because I think that was actually a, a lot of questions that our internal team had about, you know, we, we've experienced periods of rapid growth. Like, how big are we trying to get to? Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? I think we're comfortable continuing to grow to the point where, you know, our culture hasn't shifted too much and we still love being a part of Test Double. I think we've all had experiences in the past where we've grown beyond that. And, and those companies become, you know, just really problematic to work at. So we don't want to wind up doing that. All that to, to say, I think that we're at a structure now where, you know, we have 45-ish full-time employees, and then we have about 15 subs. I think we could grow the current, you know, group to probably the 70 to 80 range before we'd have to reflect and see, hey, have we made some concessions that we're not comfortable with? Do we need to maybe shrink back down to make this a place that we love? Or has nothing really changed for the worse? Can we grow this out to, to be a 100-person company? All that to say, there's pros and cons of growth, no doubt about it. Related to growth, I'm, I'm a little curious, how do you hire? And a lot of consultancies only hire senior people. Is, is that the way that you operate? Or do you hire people at all different levels? We've traditionally hired uh, more experience than less because it makes staffing a lot easier from our perspective, right? More experience means typically a larger breadth of experience in technology. So we're not a Ruby Rails consultancy. We can we do Ruby, we do Elixir, we do Node.js, we do Golang. We've done you know C sharp Java projects in the past. Hiring people who are maybe straight out of a code school or, or straight out of college, they may be very limited in the projects that they can help you at. Further, we want to make sure that the people that we put on projects are comfortable really trying to do consulting. Right? It's not enough to be able to ship features. You also have to be seeing hey. What are the challenges here? Maybe what were some of the things that we would change in this environment to leave them in a better state than, than we found them? So that typically leans more towards eight plus years experience. That said, our model has been really kind of deploying people as two to four people per engagement. So in that model, we can start hiring you know high aptitude people who maybe don't have as much experience with maybe like three years experience. Uh, and that's been successful so far. What, what's your criteria, though, for hiring people? Because, I mean, you talk about aptitude, but it, you also mentioned as far as growth goes, like culture and things like that. And, and hiring for that is sometimes a little trickier because you're, you're not just evaluating people on, oh, can you write this kind of code or can you write enough code or the right kind of code for our clients? But then it's, how do you fit in with the company? How do you fit in with the teams? Do you work well with other people? Are you going to cause a problem for our customers, things like that. So do you have other criteria and how do you evaluate that? Yeah. So I can talk a lot about our consulting pro or our interview process. 
to qualify an agent, like we go through four different steps primarily of assessing them via four different people. So our first stage is is really more of a consulting interview. There's very little in the way of technical questions there. What we're trying to assess is, is this a person who uh, aligns with our values, right? Do they show drive? Do they have a tendency towards empathy, both to their coworkers and to the clients? Do they, you know, uh, communicate openly and honestly? All of those kinds of things. Are they good problem solvers? Uh, Do they have leadership aptitude? Do they have good process knowledge? Are they comfortable with Agile, comfortable coaching people with Agile? How well do they influence others? All of those things are really, really important for consulting. From there, we go to a technical interview, and that'll hit on multiple different technologies. But really, it's more about kind of like the technical process. How do people deal with testing strategies given a Greenfield app? Um, Some of those kinds of things. From there, we actually do a take-home coding exercise. So we want to give someone the freedom to develop a solution without any constraints. And then we want to see how they respond to some questions about that. And then finally, we put them in a situation that's closest to our client work, which is here's an existing app that's maybe got some words to it. Uh, This is a feature that we want added. You're pairing with one of our agents. How do you go about like getting started? And, And what are some of the questions you have there? So all of those are designed to give not only like an assessment of someone's aptitude for technology, but also a real good idea of how well are they going to consult with our clients? How well would they fit with the rest of our team? Um, And you have four different perspectives offering up their opinions there. So we tend to get a pretty good assessment of whether or not somebody would fit. And we really only hire about three to 5% of all the candidates who come into our system. So it's, we spend a lot of time like figuring out who's a good fit. I was just thinking about the, the difficulty in kind of being committed to helping junior, you know, hiring juniors and leveling them up because you're, you're also asking your clients to participate in that process. However, it does seem like a worthy goal as a consultancy or as a, you know, as a company value. I mean, that, Chuck alluded to it at the beginning when, when he was cut early on and it was, he was at that time in his career, he was one of those earlier, you know, didn't have the eight years experience and the consultancy didn't have the pockets deep enough to hold him on the bench or level him up from that point or or get him into another language or whatever the client needed at the time. Right. And he was an unfortunate casualty of that, but that seems, I mean, that was a, a a miscarriage of justice in my mind. Like they should have been more committed to, um, I think the reason it left a sour taste in my mouth is that I had been told that that's what they would do if things didn't work and it, and then they didn't. But yeah, I mean, I understand the, the economic pressures there. So yeah, and I would, I would argue it's maybe not Chuck's, you know, fault that it didn't work out. I think there's a lot of companies that we see that are interested in hiring less experienced developers. The problem is they have no experience in leveling up those developers, right? So they just immediately assume after some, you know, canned period of time, those people will be performing at the level of, of their coworkers. And that's not you know, fair to anyone. Uh, what we're trying to do instead of hiring less experienced developers and like growing them internally is to really offer as a service to our clients, look, this is one way to help build out your teams in what is really a difficult market right now to hire talented software developers. So let us help you identify somebody, some people who would succeed there and let us help establish your, your mentorship practice, right? Lean on two of our people who have been former instructors at code schools and who really excel at leveling people up. And then we'll transfer kind of like that practice and that knowledge to you so that you could go forth and succeed with it. I like that. That, that makes a lot of sense. And um, you're kind of coming in as the experts, the for, for whatever project or team you may be helping and you're kind of leveling the entire team up already. Yep. So we want to help grow not only the less experienced developers, but also the other coworkers that are going to be there who are going to be responsible for growing them in the future, right? There's some mistakes that y'all have made or some lessons you've learned over the past few years running Test Double. Yeah, I'd say the, the biggest mistake that we made, and it still really kind of holds us back to this day, is really not focusing on diversity and inclusivity enough in the early phases of the company. So Justin and I started the company. We finally get that first opportunity to make a hire. 
And so we were kind of like nervous about this, right? At that time, we didn't have a qualification process, but we had all this sense of urgency from our client to add two more people. So we were trying to find, you know, the right person. So naturally, we just kind of looked within our own networks to people that we had worked with in the past and focused our hiring efforts there. The problem was our networks at that point looked a lot like we did, right? Our networks were filled with a lot of white, you know, males aged 24 to 40. And you repeat that like for your first like six to 10 hires. And now all of a sudden you're really behind, like with regards to diversity and inclusivity, like that's an area of our industry that is broken. And our goal stated as a company is to really improve this industry, to really kind of be an example for teams to follow for how to build healthy software delivery teams. And that's just a, a mistake that we made early on, not focusing enough on thinking about like, hey, what do we want our team to look like? What do we want the industry to look like? And how do I need to like, you know, kind of plan that out early on? So it's something that we're still, you know, I, I think lagging behind the already kind of poor industry standards for DNI, but it's something we're bringing in help and, and trying to improve on. So just to kind of play the devil's advocate, and please don't t- take me that this is my stance, but what would having a diversity and, you know, inclusivity solve? for test double? The vast majority of studies are showing that you have better problem identification and solutions coming from teams with a variety of backgrounds and perspectives, right? That's typically the hallmark of, of DE&I uh, studies. And I agree with that completely. Further, I think that, you know, it's it's difficult for us to really say that we are kind of like a vanguard of software delivery that we're an example that you all should follow when this is an area where we're obviously not living up to the standards. So I think that those are kind of like the biggest things. Like we want to, we really want to be an example for companies to follow and we would be better at solving problems for our clients. If we had more diversity across, you know, gender, race, financial background, age, experience, et cetera, because you just bring a lot more perspectives to the table. Hey folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud 66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told it I had a Rails app and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment, and now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice, it's straightforward, it has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues. That's all one word, capital R, capital R, Ruby Rogues for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. Yeah, I, I want to jump on this for a second because a lot of times people conflate the diversity of background with the diversity of, I guess, physical characteristics or, you know, whatever we identify people as. The diversity of background sometimes can be proxied by, you know, somebody somebody of a different race or economic status, and sometimes it can't. And so, I, I don't know. I, and I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to point anything out about test double or your approach or anything else, but I, I think we need to be careful when we talk about this to make sure that we are identifying people who actually are, who have those diverse backgrounds. So we have to do more than just say, we want more women or we want more people of a particular race or a different race or things like that. And actually recognize that we want to pull these people in. We want to get to know who they are. We want to identify the things that make them stand out from what we already have and then give them the opportunity to shine. Yeah, because speaking from a male near his 40s, Asian descent, I'm not sure I would bring much diversity to the table. I've been, you know, too Americanized living here most of my life. But, you know, it's just an interesting 
question. I, I like your viewpoint on it. Yeah, I like the idea of setting an example. That That is important. Yeah. In fairness to Test Double's early days, it's a very challenging problem, right? I've, you're, you've heard the quote that said, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. Well, there's a variant of it that says, if you want to go pretty far, pretty fast, go with clones, which, and, I, and you know, reaching out to our internal networks is pretty natural, I think, for most people. Like making the industry take the shape that we want it to have, to, to reflect society in general, right? In terms of the, the representations of different people or groups or whatever in our companies, maybe that's a luxury that isn't afforded you know, an early stage company. I don't know. I don't know what the solution to it is. Yeah, I think the the lesson learned from us and, and really businesses in their early days, especially, is a lot of reacting to things. So we were reacting at that time to a an opportunity in front of us to grow the business. And we reacted the best way that we could. The problem was we just didn't recognize the other issues that we were kind of creating by doing it the way that we did, right? So Eventually, we're getting that awareness and we're responding to it. I'm just sharing that, look, if I would have talked to another company who was like us, but farther along, and they would have told me, hey, think about this in the early going, I would have appreciated it. So hopefully, some other company out there getting started can learn from our mistake here. Be a little more deliberate in those early days. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely something to pay attention to. I guess, you know, one way to kind of solve that is, when doing interviews, don't use the web camera. Have your HR person or whomever black out the name so you can't even see the gender. And, you know, I mean, once you get on the phone call, you know, that's kind of out the bag, perhaps. But, you know, just a thought, that's kind of an approach I did on doing a few initial hires a few years ago is that I didn't even care about, you know, who they were, their background or anything. I just cared about, you know, how's their knowledge? Are they going to bring stuff to the table that I didn't think of? I guess the other question that that I have, you know, going back to what you brought up is just that, so yeah, you get to that point where you have to make that first initial hire. That's usually the hardest one, right? Because you have no idea what you're trying to do. You know, I need to bring somebody in that I may not know or know well. I don't know how they're going to fit. They're going to kind of set the stage for a lot of the things that go on in my company. This was part of my, I had a rant on JavaScript Jabber that I, I went on because nobody else showed up. So I, I just talked about what I wanted and it was the 10x engineer tweets. It was like, look, you know, you're, you're going to set the stage for the rest of your company with this. So don't screw it up. And don't screw it up by taking this guy's advice. So yeah, so how do you make that first hire? How do you go, you know, if you're out there, you're a freelancer. Because being a freelancer is kind of easy in the sense that you find work, you do work, Right. How do you get to the point where now it's, okay, I need more people. How do you hire the right ones that aren't going to screw things up for you, for your clients, for other people? Yeah, I think spending a decent amount of time reflecting on what exactly makes someone successful for your clients and maybe what ways you want to stretch your business, your culture, your team uh, is really, really important. So we were, I think, really just very lucky with our first hire. Our first hire is still with us you know, to this day. And really is still kind of a model consultant at Testable in a lot of ways. I think the reason that we were so successful, and really we had that with a lot of our early hires, is that we knew intimately what like we wanted to provide to our clients. Even in the early days, we knew how to kind of qualify for that. Like there's another aspect of this though that like you didn't even mention, which is you also have to sell them on being the first person to join your company. Right. Yeah. And that's not a trivial sales pitch. And we were horrible at that. I still don't know how we succeeded here because I think Justin and I both said, hey, we're just trying to keep the lights on, which is as demotivating a sales pitch as you can possibly imagine telling a candidate who's like looking at leaving a full-time job to become your first hire. So I would also spend a little bit of time articulating why it's important to kind of get out and, uh, and maybe take a chance on your company or your vision. Todd, one other thing I wanted to ask about, and this is something that you kind of brought up that is interesting to me, is that you mentioned that you have this mission for Test Double. You know, you have certain things that you want to accomplish. And one thing that I find is that a lot of companies, they don't have that. They don't create it, or they don't know how to figure out what that's supposed to be for them. You know, for devchat.tv, you know, I've done a lot of reflecting. I'm still not 100% cemented on what it is. 
but I know that a big part of it is creating a podcast for every programming community, you know, but, but for you guys, you know, how do you figure out what those values are that you espouse? How do you figure out what that mission is that you're trying to accomplish so that you can bring people in and make sure that they are a good match? Because it's hard to know that, right? You're, you're a software consultancy. So we just write code for other people, right? But it seems like there's more to it than that. And if you know what that is, you can get the right people on the bus. Yeah, I think it's it's critical. I mean, it wasn't something that we thought about until really we were about three years in. Uh, Justin and I both had, you know, pretty deep scars from like, you know, those buzzword bingo mission statements that you see at like big corporations that have like 25 words that somehow say nothing, at least intelligible. So we weren't necessarily starting out with like, hey, first step is we need to create a mission statement. All that to say, though, we started getting some leadership coaching a few years in. And, you know, the leadership coach, I remember, told me, look, you got to make money. But, you know, going to work to make money is like waking up to breathe. You got to do it, but it better not be what drives you. And honestly, like that was that was pretty enlightening for us because as we started reflecting on why were we putting in all of the time and energy into building Testable, it wasn't financial in nature. It wasn't, you know, because we like doing, you know, bookkeeping or anything like that on a part-time basis. It was because we really felt like we could have a positive impact on individuals, on teams, and on companies in an industry that is honestly still very broken. You see companies getting sued for millions and millions of dollars for messing up like website like refreshes, let alone like, you know, healthcare gov and stuff like that was happening around the time that we were kind of going through this. And we're like, man, we would just love the opportunity to take a fraction of that budget and try to build something, show them a different way of like delivering software. Our mission has always been really to improve the way the world builds software. That's something, you know, deeply personal to both Justin and I. And and it's really uh, helped align everyone that we've hired and also helped align our actions once kind of we're within the company. When we're evaluating, hey, is this a project that we want to take on for a client? we're assessing like, look, what's the impact going to be? How is this going to fulfill our purpose in some way, shape or form? So really it's, you're kind of flying like without or sailing without a compass, I guess, uh, when you don't have that purpose. Once you get that purpose, it kind of clicks everything into place and like really helps you make decisions on the right people, the right clients, et cetera. So how do you figure out what that is? What was your process? Yeah, so the leadership coach helped I would say that a lot of this stuff is hard to learn. It's really hard to learn from books. I love business books. Like I read a lot of business books and it still doesn't really help you kind of figure out how to be effective with leadership necessarily. We started using a coach and they were really good about like just kind of walking us through like what was most fulfilling in our past experiences at Test Double. And a lot of the past experiences were just, you know, times where we helped elevate a team's ability to get stuff done or to build better software or to like attack, you know, more challenging problems that stood out to us from a values perspective. We actually pulled our team at the time and kind of got a, a, a pretty good sense of what the team thought were the values of the company. And we tweaked it a little bit, but for the most part, the first 12 or so people that we hired all had a say in kind of like what the values are of the company. I guess the other question I have is, is how do you disseminate that? So now you have this core idea, right? It's, this is our mission. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is where we want to end up. And then, you know, and these are the values, right? So the, these are kind of the, the guiding stars for us as far as how we're going to get there. You know, we're not going to violate these principles as we get there. How do you disseminate that back down into your company? Yeah, so we talk about it a lot. One of the challenging things of being a remote company is that we... You know, we just don't have a lot of like organic meetings uh, as a company. Uh, we don't have an office space where you just bump into people where we could necessarily hang up a nice plaque uh, showing our purpose and our values or anything like that. So we do company retreats twice a year. Those are a great opportunity for us to kind of reinstill and remind people like, look, this is what it is. At times where we have people who are living up to the values or like really achieving that purpose with one of our clients, we try to sh share that praise, that feedback uh, back into the team, typically via Slack, but we also have a feedback tool that we use for, for kind of capturing that, that uh, data so that anytime somebody's like really living up to our values, living up to our purpose, they're getting immediate feedback, both from the client and from our internal team about 
how they're doing that. So that's kind of like a positive reinforcement of why we're all in this. Cool. So it sounded like the leadership coach had quite an impact um, to kind of help you get that focus. I'm curious because running a business is very topsy-turvy, right? There's a lot of peaks and valleys uh, in terms of the, it's, a, it's an emotional roller coaster. What, what types of things are you doing now to kind of manage that and kind of navigate through those ups and downs like your leadership coach? What strategies and, and things are you using? I've been fortunate to always have Justin as a, you know, kind of a equal footing co-founder on this adventure. He's someone who has just as much at stake as I do. I and mean, he's someone who has just as much passion and focus on this as I do. Uh, so I've been fortunate to have, you know, him to kind of bounce ideas off of and commiserate with throughout the years. Further, we've like expanded our leadership team so that now we have a lot more people who are focused on this stuff and really people who are better equipped at solving a lot of the problems than what Justin and I were in the early days. From a personal standpoint, honestly, it is stressful. It's very easy to get consumed by stuff. I think Justin and I have both done a pretty good job of kind of keeping like physical health uh, somewhere in the mix so that no matter how stressful a client interaction or an employee interaction gets, we're able to go run or bike or do something like that, blow off some steam, you know, kind of put the automatic brain into active duty so that the creative side can kind of like decompress and think about this stuff. Um, That's been huge for just kind of keeping stress at a minimum when really it can get the better of you, especially in the early days. Have you found that you and Justin play well off each other? So if one of you is stressing out, the other can kind of calm the other one down or do you kind of feed off of each other's stress? Probably a little bit of both, depending on the topic or the timing. No, I think for the most part, we've uh, we've both gotten pretty good to understand like what each other's triggers are and what, like we're both problem solvers by nature, right? As most programmers are. So we both, I think, have gotten a better sense for when one of us is looking for advice or help or affirmation or when one of us is just looking to vent. So I, I guess the other question I have related to everything that we've talked about so far is, you know, you mentioned that you kind of want to be this beacon for the community or the the programming industry as far as, you know, how things can be done. What does that vision look like? Like, wh- where do you think the, the industry could get to, you know, uh, maybe as a good next step and then maybe 10 years down the road, you know, what, what, what do you think the industry could look like ideally? Getting people to a level of comfort that like software isn't manufacturing, right? Those big companies who are trying to procure software via fixed bid, fixed scope models are treating it like buying a bunch of pencils. And software is not pencil buying. Like there's wildly varying levels of quality. There's just a a lot of different ways to get to a solution that all have their different pros and cons. So like getting this kind of commodity purchasing mindset out of software delivery to me is huge. Further, like as our name would imply, like we still see a ton of just challenges with people building high quality software that's relatively defect free and that is easily maintained for years to come. We constantly get inundated with people struggling with, hey, should we just rewrite this? And we look at it and it's a system that was only built three years ago. Like, why are we already entertaining a rewrite for something? There's just so much money wasted, so many user experiences that go down. All of these things, I think, could be improved. I think we're still small, but we're punching above our weight a little bit with this stuff. So we're trying to have a big impact, even though we're 60-ish consultants at this point. I'll just chime in on the rewrite. People make some really bad decisions, like really, really horrible decisions for four years in a row, just one on top of each other, where sometimes a rewrite's just the answer instead of trying to put Band-Aids on old rusty Band-Aids. I don't disagree. I think what I want to fix is the previous four years, right? Like, hey, can we build this to a state where it doesn't need to be rewritten, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, yeah, the rewrite might be the solution. But if you don't fix the people behind it, then you're going to wind up with the same, well, the same kinds of problems, not necessarily the same exact problems. We see the same thing with technology, right? A lot of people are, hey, let's move this, you know, existing Ruby system over to Elixir because that'll solve all our problems. And it's like, well, it may, but if it's the same team and the same circumstances that resulted in this system that's like got all these problems, like what exactly are you changing? Like it very rarely is the technology actually going to fix all your problems. Yeah. How much of your uh, consultancy expertise is is fed to the client as 
building a better environment where they won't make those types of mistakes? We talk a lot about that. Um, so oftentimes clients come to us because they have just a capacity need, right? So they can't find enough developers and they have deadlines and they want to get stuff done. We're very clear in the sales process that, look, we're comfortable helping you solve that problem. We also are good consultants. So we want to understand the root cause of that problem, right? Uh, we also want to like level up your team as we go through. And when we talk a little bit more about like how we work, how we really integrate and try to just act as an extension of your existing team, it becomes really crystal clear to them that we're a little bit different and that we're not, you know, trying to just work with your product owner and ship a bunch of features and hand it off and then go away. We're really trying to have a lasting impact here that that addresses bigger issues that you're probably not even thinking of when you're coming to buy a, buy from us. I imagine for some clients, that's probably a welcome change. And for others, they may not be too interested. And I think that's fair. We've definitely offered up, you know, I'm sure thousands of uh, solutions or at least identified hundreds of problems that our clients have kindly asked us not to worry about for the time being. So it doesn't mean that it's not valuable, right? Like uh, eventually it may be lower on their list of priorities. Uh, We hope we at least kind of shine a light on the issues. And I like that because you see too many consultancies who are only focused on the current job or task project, and then they want to hurry up and get those developers onto the next one. They don't really care about the project anymore once it leaves their shop and is handed over to the company. So I think having focus on actually writing tests, you know, your managers allowing that kind of time and to train up the people and the company with processes and stuff. It's really great. It's something that you just don't see. And yet something that the vast majority of companies we've run into actually need. So so one other thing I'm curious about, um, I, I know we're, we've kind of jumped from topic to topic, but Testable is primarily a remote company. I, I see more companies becoming more comfortable with remote and then other companies just fight it with everything they have. And I think there are reasons for both. But from your standpoint, what, what's it like running a remote company? And what are some of the pitfalls and advantages you run into there? Yeah, I think it's, it's accurate to phrase it as a set of trade-offs because it's not that you know there is one solution to this and everyone should go remote. I think the biggest strengths that we've had with going remote have been that it's expanded our network much faster than we could have otherwise, right? So we hire somebody in the Pacific Northwest, all of a sudden they're connected to 10 other people who are a great fit for Testable, either as clients or potentially as employees. And we're making those connections and starting to expand out there. We started in Columbus, Ohio. And honestly, like it's a really tough market to find talented developers in Columbus, Ohio right now. So it would limit our growth unnecessarily by just fixating on a few zip codes. The challenge that we have is connectedness and collaboration is much harder as a remote company. It's very easy to feel isolated uh, to feel like you're working just for your client and that you're not a you know a significant part of testable when working remote because 90% of your focus is going to be on the client stuff. So you really have to be deliberate about how you build in that level of connectedness and collaboration. I mentioned the two retreats that we do a year like we kind of call that our office tax. We don't have an office space that we pay for, but we pay a lot of money to fly everybody out to two different locations in a year so that we can all can continue to develop those relationships and and focus on the business as much as we focus on the clients. We do other stuff like having weekly meetings where, you know, some people will present on topics. Uh, Other times I'll give an update on the business. Other times we'll just do kind of like some fun uh, activities to kind of develop more relationships. All of those things are important. um, And I think you have to be deliberate about them if you're going remote. But man, the benefits of being remote, like our network, um, the ability to you know, just hire people in the middle of Iowa or something like that. There's really just not that many clients in Iowa. Those things are huge for us. How does that affect your clients as well? So, I mean, you're you're a remote company, but you're probably working with companies that maybe not remote or maybe only partial remote, and then now they've hired a remote consultant. So can you talk to the challenges and benefits from that perspective as well? Yeah, I think our our team has gotten better at like kind of proactive communication via limited bandwidth. Like Zoom's great, but like it's still limited in the body language and stuff like that that you can pick up on when you're pairing with someone. So we have to be a lot better about being proactive with questions. Hey, do you do you agree with this? Do you have any questions about this? Do you would you prefer we did this a different way? 
So the, the consultants are, are growing at that, but I think they're getting better. I think the benefit to our clients, uh, so first of all, also, we typically start out at least a couple of weeks on site, a week or so on site, just to help develop those relationships so that before you know, I'm chiming in on a pull request or something like that, and you've never met me, we at least have some kind of common footing and some, some amount of trust built up. But I think the benefit that our clients are starting to see, and, and some have acknowledged this directly, is that they all feel some sense of pressure to start looking at remote as an option for people. So this can be a good foray into really leaning on us and our experience into how to do that successfully. That speaks to your broader mission as well. Exactly. So what do you do in, in a company that's fully remote to build that remote culture that actually works? Because I've, I've seen a lot of remote companies and at the end of the day, what they wind up with is just a bunch of people that get on a call periodically with each other. Even the calls like that are difficult because it's typically one person talking and, you know, however many 40-ish people listening. So it's kind of a, a very shallow connection, I think, in that regard. One of the other things that we implemented was we all just kind of missed that time uh, where you work in an office and you go to get coffee and then you wind up, you know, talking football or weather, or kids activities or what have you with a coworker for 10, 15 minutes. So we actually have an automated tool that pairs you up with someone every week. So someone different for you to have coffee time with. And it'll email you a link to their calendar, ask you just to go put 30 minutes on their calendar to talk about anything like ideally not work-related, but if you want to talk work stuff, that's great too. Just to kind of build those deeper relationships among people. We even have some people starting up uh, kind of like remote gaming nights. So we have like some of our first like remote D&D and and tabletop games happening among some of our team right now, just to try and like kind of get that feel of, of coworkers that maybe you don't get to have lunch with every day, but you at least still have a, a deeper relationship with. I'm curious about some of the tools you use to, to work with each other and with your clients. You had mentioned Zoom. What other, what other tools are you using to, to work? Yeah, it's, we're pretty low fidelity. I mean, we use Zoom and Slack primarily. Um, so shared Slack channels with our clients is great. Using Zoom primarily for communication is great. We definitely lean a little bit on the, the feedback and visibility side of agile processes. So making sure we have daily standups and some iteration meeting happening, ideally on a weekly basis, maybe every other week, so that we're never veering too far off course. Those things are all super important. From a tooling perspective, there's what 70 different like card walls you can choose from. I think we've probably used them all at this point. So we just kind of defer to whatever our clients prefer. Yeah, those are those are really the big ones, honestly. Like I from a development perspective, as I mentioned, I do very little development anymore. I know people use teammate, TMUX, or just like, you know, kind of screen share uh, with some other tools. So So what are the different roles that you have in at Test Double these days? I mean, besides the, I guess, uh, consultant or? So we've done zero stratification of people in consulting roles uh, so far. So anyone who's on the delivery side is, is kind of just listed blankly as a consultant. So the other internal roles that we have, I'm in essence a CEO, although that feels a little presumptuous at our size. Justin heads up sales and marketing. Uh, Mike, like I mentioned, heads up account management. We have Amber heads up employee engagement. So that is really responsible for Consistent one-on-ones with people, understanding what issues they have, focusing on their career goals, how we can help support them arriving at those career goals, and then just generally talking about other ways to contribute to Test Double or that Test Double can help them. That has expanded farther beyond Amber. So she actually has some consultants who are also doing that as part of their role. Similarly, with uh, how we qualify people, I mentioned there are four different stages. You always get four different viewpoints. That's probably accomplished by 15 or more different people who are either helping to kind of communicate and facilitate your interview experience or actually conducting the interviews themselves. Um, And that's extremely key. And then we have, uh, last year, we hired a head of HR and operations, Christine, who's done a great job of kind of, you know, applying a lens of fairness and unbiasedness in all that we do. Um, And she's been, been critical in that. All right. Well, this has been really interesting just to discuss and yeah, to get your viewpoints on things and, and see where you know people can improve and learn and grow. If people want to see what you're working on or thinking about these days, Todd, where do they go? 
Yeah, testdouble.com has uh, all of our content, uh, our blog especially. We've been pretty good this year about trying to get new content out uh, almost every week. So you can find a variety of our team's thoughts there and everything's out there in the archives. So you can kind of search through that to see uh, a variety of technical or non-technical topics about what's on our mind. Cool. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. All right, team. Well, should we do some picks? I'm going to ask Dave to start us with picks. Yeah, sure. So my first pick is a bit of a weird one. It is Simply Heinz Ketchup. And the important bit is the Simply. So this is the non-high fructose corn syrup ketchup. And it's actually really good. So it tastes just like the normal Heinz without all the junk and additives. So we give that to our kids and it's been really great. And the other thing is the Pile 19 Outlet 1U Rack Mountable Power Strip. So I have an audio rack that sits right next to me. But one thing I've always been lacking is power outlets and USB chargers. So having that just rack mount, forward facing, some USB chargers and also power outlets has been really nice and you know, kind of just a very nice life convenience. Nice. Nate, do you have some picks? I do. So I'm, I'm in the middle of a book. I'm not quite done with it, but I'm going to pick it anyway because it's proving to be so interesting. Um, it's called The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. I believe he's actually a, a candidate on the Democratic ticket for president, but the, the book is really about universal basic income and it kind of talks about the American economy and where a lot of our jobs are going or a lot of jobs that are getting automated away, whether it be through software or robotics or whatever. It's, it's pretty fascinating, just the, his assessment on the economy and, and what's happening to these jobs and, and what we can do to try to stem you know, the displacement of those workers from, from the advancing technology that we're, we're all a part of. So that's a pretty interesting read so far. The other pick I've got is kind of a shout out to Test Double. It's, uh, I've been using Test Double's standard RB library which is just a Ruby code formatter. It sits on top of uh, RuboCop. And I've been, I've been starting to bolt that into a lot of my Ruby projects where I've actually got a little bin script that will, if they've got uh, uh, JavaScript in the project as well, it will run both standard RB and prettier to essentially eliminate all the act shaving associated with you know, choosing your, your coding style. So it's been pretty good. Very cool. I'll have to check that one out. And Andrew Yang, I've heard a couple interviews with him and he, I don't know if I necessarily agree with everything he says, but he sounds like he's thought it through. And so in the interviews, it's, it's hard, kind of like this, right? You know, it's hard to necessarily get all of the nuance to what, you know, what the thought processes are. And so it'd be interesting to just see a full book on, on his thoughts. So that, that's also interesting just to look into. Yeah, definitely. Andrew, what are your picks? So my pick is an extension for VS Code called Remote Containers. And what it basically does is it lets you use a Docker container as like a full-featured dev environment. So you can basically SSH into a Docker container and VS Code will act as if it's running inside that container on that machine. And you can set up extensions and do all kinds of cool stuff. So for someone who works a lot in Docker, this is really cool. It really helps speed up some things and allows for some other extensions to work that don't really work because of your code running inside of a container. And it's not really privy to that. Nice. I might have to try that out. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is, is that I've been traveling a bit for these conferences lately. And one of the things that I figured out is that I really enjoy interviewing people at the conferences. And when I'm doing that, I kind of need some way of 
just uh, you know making the interview go. And I, I want to do a, I want to do a good job. I want to have good quality stuff. And so I got a new camera. I got the Nikon D fifty six hundred. Not necessarily a cheap camera, but a very nice. It's a DSLR camera. I've been really, really happy with it. I recorded a bunch of interviews at RxJS Live. If you're doing observables in JavaScript, that's what that conference was about. It was its first year and it was a smallish conference, but it was a ton of fun. And I uh, got to talk to a whole bunch of people. I also got the Rode Newscaster, which is not a microphone. Rode makes microphones. But what it is, is it's a wireless system where you put the receiver, essentially you connect it to your camera and you just plug it into the audio port. And then you have... a uh, transmitter that you attach to your XLR mic. And the XLR is the three-pronged plug that you, you see on, on microphones. And so then what you have is you have this wireless mic that pipes the sound into the camera. And anyway, it's, it's really great. I hooked an Shure SM58 microphone to it, which isn't as nice as the Electrovoice RE20 that I'm talking into right now, but it's definitely a nice mic and it sounded amazing. I had to do a little bit of tweaking on the settings on my uh, camera because it tends to gain up the sound a little bit on the microphone. And so you've got to essentially turn the gain all the way down and then turn the gain up on the microphone itself. Otherwise, you'll wind up with this hiss in the audio because it, it's set up for the onboard mic and I wasn't using the onboard mic. So anyway, really, really like that setup and I've, I've been super happy with the way that things have turned out with it. So I'm going to pick that as well. Yeah, I think that's all I've got this time. And then go check out the DevRev at devrev.io, I think it is, because I'm going to start throwing opinions out there because people have been asking me to share more of my thoughts on some of this stuff. So anyway, Todd, what are your picks? Yeah, so I mentioned I'm uh, fascinated with business books. Probably the two that were most impactful to me, uh, Drive by Daniel Pink. I read that book while working at my last company uh, with Justin. And that was the moment the light bulb went off that I wasn't getting autonomy, mastery, and fulfillment out of my current job. Uh, and that was really kind of the, the snowball at the top of the mountain that started us like really thinking about creating a company. The other one is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And that is really, I think, some of the most pertinent advice for someone for an entrepreneur starting a business that that I've ever seen. So those two books were really influential in, in getting Test Double started and also getting it off the ground. Nice. Yeah, I tend to be a junkie for the business books and I'll go through them and I'll take notes and then it's okay. You know, I go back to my team and I'm like, okay, hey, we're doing this now. <laughs> you know, or we're trying this anyway is usually the way it goes. And then we kind of use a little bit of uh, the agile process to have a retrospective on it in a few weeks. I haven't read either of those books, incidentally, so I'll have to add them to my I'll, list. I'll plus one. I'll pile on both of those books. They're both fantastic. Nice. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Todd, and talking to us. We'll go ahead and wrap this show up, and uh, we'll come back at people next week. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.